decided you were going to go down a path of sin and God stopped you? Have you ever decided you were going to go down a path of sin and he put a barrier right in front of you and you thought to yourself, now why is that here? God's stopping me from sinning. That's happened to me many times and I trust it's happened to you if you're a believer. It's not something to be taken for granted. One day God withholds and, and withdraws those love barriers to sin. He sometimes, as Romans 1 says, gives us over to our repeated patterns and paths of sin. We don't know when that is. We're not supposed to. We're instead supposed to humble ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't have the capacity to stop my own sin. You have to come into my life with new power and bring sin to an end in me. The very thing I don't want to do, that's what I do. The very thing I do want to do, I end up not doing it and doing what I don't want to do, Paul says in Romans 7. That's the description of every believer's life. Mercifully, God put barriers of sin in front of Saul. Still, Saul rises up in the morning, gathers his sons, gathers the Israelite army, and he goes out to fight against the Philistines. And we see in very short order, Samuel's prophecy, even from the dead, comes to pass, and Saul dies. God has the power, God has the righteousness, God has the integrity, God has the wisdom, and God alone has the authority to take a man's life when he is pursuing such hardened sin. Be cautious how you pray, but pray according to the Psalms. Pray according to Saul's life. Pray according to the reality that while man does not have the righteousness, wisdom, and authority, God most certainly does. And God will have his way. We find this royal contrast going on between David and Saul. David's rising. David has got his small band of believers, 600 men and their families, living in a community called Ziklag. It is the mercy and protection of God where, where here's David living right in the midst of his enemies, the Philistines. But they've given to him a city that actually God gave to him through them that he had appointed for them. A place of rest, a resort, a place of peace, a place of worship and community. But David himself has been pursued by Saul. He's on the run from Saul. He's not been able to worship in his homeland of Israel. He's not been able to see his family. He's not been able to see his friends, especially his dear friend, Jonathan. You can just imagine the anguish, the sorrow, the difficulty that David is under as he has been on the run for his entire adult life, lied about and falsely accused by Saul. And yet at the same time, he's under the favor and protection of God while he's in Ziklag. And I thought, oh, how similar that is to the Christian's life today. We have wars coming against us in the form of the Philistines. We're living right in this Philistine-like world. But we're living inside the protected care and love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Ziklag is a little bit similar to the idea that we're dwelling inside Christ. We're protected and safe in Him. If you're a believer, you don't have to follow the ways of the world. If you're a believer, you don't have to do what the world says you should do. Or even let your desires be trained to desire what they desire. If you're in Christ, you're in your protected ziklag, the church, and you can enjoy the resort, the fellowship, the sweetness, the rest that being in Christ affords. 
We also have an accuser pursuing us and lying about us all day long. And he gets up in the morning looking for ways to pursue us and to accuse us and to lie about us. His name is the devil and Satan. Just like David had Saul. We have the power of the living God ruling over both our accuser and the Philistines in, inside of their nation in which we live. And he's the one who has provided for our care. It's like we're a secret kingdom of priests to the Lord. And we just look like everybody else. We bleed and die like everybody else. But we who know Christ are a secret kingdom that will one day be revealed according to Romans 8. The children of the sons of God will be on display and all of nature is groaning and waiting as in birth pangs for the revealing of the sons of God. So then the question becomes, how should we live? Should we just run back to Ziklag and just hide there? Should we just collect as many supplies as we can and just cower and shiver in some corner until all the bad stuff that we think happens comes? No, that's not what David did. We know from the previous chapter that David made raids out of Ziklag. He went to fight God's battles. He went to cleanse his homeland, Israel, from the enemy nations who had no business being there. David was a warrior and he fought the battles for the Lord and he protected and provided for. And surely he was having sweet fellowship and worship with his secret flock gathered at Ziklag. We see from hints in this paragraph, this chapter, both paragraphs that Paul just read, that there are four ways that David is living in Ziklag, right in this embattled time, that are instructive for us who live in a world surrounded by Philistine ideas and pursued by our own accuser. Here they are. They key off of four words, sacrifice, holiness, favor, and joy. Sacrifice, holiness, favor, and joy. I want to show you all four in this chapter very briefly. Here's the sentence I've attached to each. Sacrifice steals God's gift of authentic faith. Not steals and takes away. Steals in making it steel-like. Sacrifice makes steel-like God's gift of authentic faith. Two, holiness bears witness in war. Holiness bears witness in war. Three, favor reveals God's grace. And fourth, joy arises from God's sovereign hand. Four words, sacrifice, holiness, favor, and joy. These are the words that define David's life while he's living in Ziklag, instructive for us while we live here and now. Let's look at each one. First, sacrifice steals. It makes tempered and strong and sturdy and immovable our authentic faith. Think about David's life. Think about his entire life of sacrifice. Think about how difficult his life has been and how that qualifies him to be a leader of men. Think of all that David has given up. What does David feel when he puts on the armor that he received as a gift from Jonathan, his friend? Isn't he think fondly of Jonathan and how Jonathan said, I have a right to be king after my father Saul, but I want you to be king, David. Take my armor. Think of David as he looks at his wife, Abigail, who prophetically stopped David from killing an, a man in anger and in revenge. 
Think of him as he looks at his prophet friend Gad and thinks not only about Gad's wise prophecies and how he hears from the Lord through Gad, but, but how he thinks about Samuel. How sweetly he thinks about the memory of Samuel alive and teaching. Not a dark, middle-of-the-night seance full of impurity and shame and hypocrisy, but a sweet memory of conversations where the mighty Samuel thundered the word of God and it hit through David's heart and he said, yes, that's the man I shall be, God being my helper. Or he looks over at Ahimelech, wearing the ephod, his head bowed, listening to the Lord. Will it be yes? Will it be no? Will it be yes and yes? No and no. I'm hearing from the Lord. And what does David think? He thinks, oh, how precious is Ahimelech to me, his dad, and all the other prophets and all their family, uh, priests, all their families, wiped out in murderous hatred by command of Saul in the community of Nob. What does David think when he hears the song sung of him, even as far away as the Philistines? Saul killed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. He thinks, oh, of course, it was the goodness of God. It was the power of God. It was the favor of God in Ahimelech, in Gad, in this armor, in my wife, in everything around me, all of the 600 and your families and the Ziklag community that we live in. God has a plan. God is good. God is taking care of me. You should look around your life and have two overwhelming thoughts. One, you have blessing in your life beyond what you can possibly imagine if you know Christ. You have a body of Christ in this family at the landing and you have other believers around you who are more precious to you than you can possibly describe. You have the word of God, the spirit of God which dwells within you and among us as we open it and study it. You have songs that help us sing of the glorious gospel. You have all the provisions and supplies that you need to love God and live out your life. You will have a meal at the end of this service today. You had a meal for breakfast this morning. The heat is on in this building and not one bomb has fallen through the roof. And you will not find your home bombed when you return. How blessed we are. The second thought you will have is this. God ordains that David went through sacrifice in order that that long, all his adult life being chased by Saul and the sacrifices he endured and the preciousness that he now looks at with every element of his life in Ziklag was not a plan B for David. It was God's plan A. Don't resent God for withholding the plan you thought you wanted. In the first. Rather receive humbly from God. The better plan. He made of your life. Your ministry and witness and living in an embattled world. Hangs on your contentment. In the plan that God gave you. The better plan than the one you had in mind. Listen to the way Paul says this to Timothy, his beloved mentoree in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. 
But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. It's almost as if Paul wrote that to Timothy right after reading for Samuel. You realize what this means. Your life filled with maybe a very long series of sacrifices. Precious realities you had hoped for at one time that you have learned to be content with. Though they are long term reminders of a of a hope unfulfilled. Take with David and believers everywhere the absolute faith and confidence into the presence of God and offer to him your thanksgiving for the life he said was the one better still that he crafted for you. And let your story, your life, and the telling of your story with not regret and complaint and murmuring, but with thanksgiving and contentment and faith, be the witness you share in the midst of the war. Less beneath the word of God, only second to the word of God, is your testimony and your story as a powerful witness for the love of Christ in your life. People around you must hear how you came to Christ and how you are walking with him to this day, even though it wasn't exactly as you'd hoped or planned. People need to hear how good God is that you prayed for this and yet he gave you exactly what you prayed for in exactly the time you prayed for it or something far better still. Have you shared how you came to Christ with everyone in your family? Does everyone know how you became a believer? Do your friends know? Does this church know how you became a believer? What a wonderful use of conversation over a meal at lunch at the landing. So how did God reach into your life? And how is he at work in your life today? Trading stories back and forth across the table. This is what I had aimed at. This is what God gave, which was better still. Sacrifice. It steals our, our authentic faith. People look into our lives and they see that this is not a phony believer when they look at a long-term trajectory of someone who has said, thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you give. Thank you for what you take away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's my testimony. Powerful witness. David's witness is exactly that. So is the witness of every faithful person in the Bible and throughout church history. Holiness bears witness in war. That kind of contentment produces a sense of holiness. That kind of sense that God is with me and God is good and he's ordered my life not as I would have, but something better still produces a kind of holiness in us. That holiness is on display right here in these verses. Look at verse 3. The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish king... Now friend to David said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. Achish finds no fault in David because David is living a life blameless and holy, even though he's in Ziklag on the run from Saul and not even living in his own nation of Israel. Achish finds no fault in him. David has fought for Israel. 
though the king thinks that David fights for the Philistines, David has cleverly and wisely, like any good king, preserved and cared for his own people, and yet he has done it in such a way that he has not brought undue violence, harm, or danger to himself and his people. Look at verse 6. It's reiterated. Now Achish isn't speaking to his Philistine generals. He's speaking to David. And Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives. You always pause, don't you, when in a pagan's mouth the, the oath of God comes out? <laughs> Apparently Achish is either being fully evangelized here or he is really, really uh, interested in gathering all the gods he can into his life. He's quoting Yahweh and bringing Yahweh's name to bear in the form of an oath. And he says to David, as the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you. And what I'm drawing your attention to is how boldly and clearly Achish sees the holiness of David and saying, is that not a massive theme in the Bible that we too should demonstrate holiness to the world around us? Let the Philistine world see a holiness in us. You know, in our culture, precious realities of, of marriage and family and biblical sexuality are being so thoroughly violated that anybody who just stands up and says, I'm going to do what the Bible says with regard to sexuality, marriage, and family is a very bold witness of holiness. And there's so many other ways that we demonstrate holiness by simply being faithful to the Lord in his word inside a world, a Philistine-like world that is rushing headlong away from God's design. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That's what we're in, exile. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So the thinking that Peter and the Holy Spirit who inspired Peter to write that means for us to have in our heads is this. Because the precious blood of Jesus Christ bought my life, I am going to live in holiness all the days of my life. I am going to live in holiness with regard to the food and substances I put in my body. I'm going to live in holiness with regard to my sexual experience. I'm going to live in holiness with regard to my thoughts and my words, my dollars and my time, my dreams and my desires. All of it, God, I want to be holy to you because your holy son bought my salvation. That's the logic of 1 Peter Chapter 1. That's the logic David's functioning in when he comes before this pagan king who is seeing God in David and says to David, I haven't found any fault in you at all. May it be that we put away, as God helps us, temptations during times of danger 
that feel so small and easy to jump into, so easy to compromise with. Like I'm going to just throw on a hood over my face and I'm going to go talk to a necromancer just this one time. Because I just got to find out what's going to happen with this war tomorrow with the Philistines. Maybe I can get Samuel to come back from the dead and he can say, hey, Saul, you're on the right track. It's going to be fine. No problem. You're going to wipe him out. You got this, Saul. The temptations during desperate wartime situations are fierce and intense. If we're faithful if God helps us to pursue holiness now, if, he, if, if you pray, Lord, show me the thing in my life that you want to remove. I, I offer you my life and, and I ask you to search me and try me and see if there be any unholy way in me. Take it from me. Purify me. Make me ready for the day when the challenges and the temptations and the battle grows near. Holiness bears witness in war. Peter goes on in 1 Peter 2, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now there's a bigger war than just physical wars in countries or at our door. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So there's a witnessing power to our holiness. We sacrifice and it steals our faith. We pursue holiness, and that holiness bears witness to even those who would be our accusers. Third, favor reveals grace. Where do I see favor here? Look on in verse 8. Achish, the king, and David continue to talk. David asks, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I might not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? We don't really know how David feels from this, do we? Who's he talking about, my lord, the king? Does he mean Saul? Does he mean Achish, the one he's talking to? Or does he mean Yahweh, the Lord? We will see in a moment, David's in a huge pickle. I mean, it's like worse than a pickle. It's really bad. He can't go to war. He can't stay back either. So I think he's actually feigning this sentence. But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the king? If I were David, I'd be praying like crazy for a miracle that he wouldn't have to go with the Philistines and fight against the Israelites, his own people, and maybe kill Saul. And maybe be the one who draws blood against Saul, or at least part of the army that does. Because everything we know about David is not to raise a hand against the anointed of God. But also not in the middle of the battle to switch to the Israelite side and turn against the Philistines and have them wipe him out. He would never be king. He and his precious little flock would be decimated. David's been a double agent, and now he's in double trouble. Verse 9, Achish answered David and said, I know that you're blameless in this, my sight as an angel of God. 
That phrase, as an angel of God, you can look up in a few other places in the Bible, 2 Samuel 14, 17, for instance. It means someone who's under the mighty favor and presence of God. An angel is someone who knows what God is doing on the earth and has wisdom and knowledge, knows good from evil. That's what the definition of this phrase, someone as an angel of God, is. And that King Achish knows enough to use that phrase, the angel of God, a Hebrew phrase, to describe to David. He's saying, David, the favor of God is with you. That's why I found no fault in you. And that's why I'm telling you what I'm telling you right now. You are under the favor of God. Listen to how Paul talked about it with regard to himself, to the Galatians. He said, though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. Galatians 4.14. It's the, it's the qualities of the second person of the Trinity on display in a person's life by the power of the third person of the Trinity. That's what an angel of God reference means. God's favor is on David. The, the Philistine generals are saying to their king, we don't want him fighting with us. He might turn against us. We remember all the way back in chapter 14 when Jonathan was fighting and he got some of us Philistines to turn against us and we killed ourselves. We don't want that happening again. So no, we don't want these Hebrews coming with us. But instead of Achish fighting against his generals and standing for his own desire to have David come, he capitulates. He says, David, you need to go back. You need to, rec you need to return to Ziklag, to safety, to peace. The favor of God rests on David. How bold he should be. How bold he should be. How bold we should be if the favor of God rests upon us. There should not be one person. There should not be one army. There should not be one situation in which we are not ready to stand up and proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. I saw a video the other day. I was looking at one of the news websites. And I saw a Ukrainian woman coming to her front gate yelling and screaming in Ukrainian against the Russian soldiers. Get out of here. You don't have any right to be here. You're not going to take over my house. I thought, man, we need more women like that in the world. I want to be like that. I want to be bold and strong. I want to go right into the heart and the den of darkness and say, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. Let's speak against evil in the world. Let's not just turn our heads in sorrow. Let's pray about it like crazy and then let's go act on it. Because we've sacrificed and our faith is steeled. We are living, God helping us in holiness, growing each day. And that's a witness for wartime. And out of that holiness comes this sense of sweet favor upon us, giving us a boldness to live out our faith and not shrink back. We don't care if they say you Christians can just meet inside your buildings and just keep your Christianity to yourself. No way. If my Christianity is real, it covers the earth. It's not going to stay cooped up inside this building or inside my personal life. It's not a private matter if it's real. He's either Lord of all or he's not Lord at all. Look at verse 7. Coming now to the final observation, joy arises from God's sovereign hand. It feels so risky, doesn't it? It feels so risky. What would happen if I went to Ukraine? What would happen if Americans take their weapons and go over and help the fight in Ukraine? What would happen 
If Rick and Marilyn Perhai leave Ukraine, go to Tel Aviv and end up in Krakow, Poland to receive refugees. It seems so risky. How do we know things will work out for good? How do we know things will work out right? How do we know it will be okay? How do we know it will be okay even if we die? You remember Jesus said in Matthew 10, they're not going to harm a hair of your head, those enemies who will come against you one day, but some of you will die. You remember how he said that? So I'm going to lay in the casket with perfectly combed hair? No, he means even if you die, I'm not a failure and your faith in me is not a failure. That's victory because there's something infinitely worse than dying, right? Dying without Christ. How does David know it's all going to be okay? How do we know? David was facing the worst nightmare of his life. He could not fight for the Philistines against Israel. That would be treason. He'd end up being a part of the army that violates the very principle that he lives by. I'm going to honor the anointed of God and I'm not going to take over the kingdom. David did not want to draw Israelite blood. He did not want to kill Saul. He couldn't. Nor did he want to turn against the Philistines that he was now living among. For they would immediately kill him if they thought that he was in fact a traitor to them. He's in the worst difficulty of his life. And verse 7, Achish the king says... Since all the Philistine generals, whom God has the power to work on their wills and words, don't want you fighting with us, Achish says, so go back now and go peaceably. Go in peace. This is a blessing. Achish speaks to David. Go in peace. That you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. Can you imagine the kind of relief that came over David? The kind of joy and strong peace that rises up inside David. He would get back among his 600 men and he would say, yes, we don't have to kill anybody today. We get to go back to Ziklag and live to fight another day. We don't get killed by all these Philistines around us and we don't have to go kill Saul. And all the Philistine or Israelite brothers and sisters that we don't want to kill. Can you imagine the joy and the relief that they all experienced? Because how was this David of theirs going to lead them? How was he going to get out of this double trouble, double agent? Hard spot that he put them in. Go back to Ziklag peacefully, the king said to David. And the king was speaking the very voice of God. How do we know that that's the way to read this? How do we know that we should see the hand of God ordaining this miracle to happen where David and his 600 men don't have to fight for either side? Here's how we know. Here's how the author is helping us know. Look really carefully with me. You, you remember the, the ugly, dark, sin, messed up way Saul went to the necromancer. He went at night. He went disguised. He didn't even see the, the vision of Samuel. She saw it. Explain what Samuel looked like. He's laying on the ground. His eyes can't see it. He's blind spiritually. He's blind because it's nighttime three times 
the writer said it was nighttime, pointing so clearly to the darkness inside Saul's soul that had become so pervasive. Now look with me how this chapter ends, verses 10 and 11. Look what's repeated. Achish says further to David, Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you and start early in the morning and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning. We get it. It's early in the morning. Good sermon to preach on daylight savings time. Set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Four times the word dawn is used. Four times. The author means to say, David is under the shining, bright, clear sunlight of God's favor and love. David sees. Four times. It's early in the morning and light. David walks. Three times with other illusions, Saul's at night and in the dark. David's walking in the light. Rejoice, David. Take joy in the fact that God spared you from having to fight against Saul and your countrymen, the Israelites, and he spared you from death among the Philistines for turning against them. Take joy, David, in the sovereign plan of God. He will have his way. He will work out the wills and the words of Men, women, and children around the world, his family and his foes. So David would write in Psalm 108, My heart is steadfast, O God. I will sing and make melody with all my being. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great among the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth, let, that your beloved ones may be delivered. Give salvation by your right hand and answer me. David rejoices in the sovereign hand of God, ordering war. Christ himself says, as he rejoices in the Holy Spirit, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Jesus, like the son of David, who is the son of David, rejoices in the same sovereign hand of God. We who are looking at the world, look at these nations, especially Ukraine and Russia, but we look at our own nation or our own lives and we say, God, would you rule in sovereign power over every detail that unfolds? Some have been quick to say, without thinking carefully, the sovereign hand of God so meticulously ruling then makes us think, what does what our efforts matter? Why pray? Why speak? Why act? The answer, of course, isn't that God's sovereignty in war makes prayer superfluous. The answer is God's sovereignty in all things makes prayer possible. Let me close with this. On July 5th, 1863, President Abraham Lincoln took his son and he visited a hospital in which some of his generals in the Union Army, whose bodies had been irreparably injured, were recuperating from the first days of the battle at Gettysburg. One general named General Sickles asked the president out loud if he was anxious before the Battle of Gettysburg. Here's Lincoln's answer. Lincoln was speaking and his son was there. Doctors were there. Other patients were there. General Sickles, 
he was addressing with these words. No, I was not anxious, Lincoln said. Some of my cabinet and many others in Washington were, but I had no fears. In the pinch of your campaign up there, when everybody seemed panic-stricken and nobody could tell what was going to happen, oppressed by the gravity of our affairs, I went to my room one day and I locked the door and I got down on my knees before Almighty God and prayed to him mightily for victory at Gettysburg. I told him that this was his war and our cause was his cause. But we couldn't stand another Fredericksburg or Chancellorsville. Terrible battles. And I then and there made a solemn vow to Almighty God that if he would stand by our boys at Gettysburg, I would stand by him. And he did stand by our boys. And I will stand by him, Lincoln said to General Sykes. And after that, I don't know how it was and I can't explain it, says Lincoln. Soon a sweet comfort crept into my soul that God Almighty had taken the whole business into his own hands and that things would go all right at Gettysburg. And you may know that Gettysburg was a turning point of victory for the Civil War and the cause of freedom. Twelve days later, after the Battle of Gettysburg, July 15, 1863, Lincoln is proclaiming to the whole nation, both the North and the South, this day of prayer. Listen. It is meet and right to recognize and confess the presence of the Almighty Father and the power of His hand equally in these triumphs and in these sorrows. I invite the people of the United States to render the homage due to the divine majesty for the wonderful things He has done in the nation's behalf and invoke the influence of His Holy Spirit to subdue the anger which has produced and so long sustained a needless and cruel rebellion. If you look at your life as a sweet sacrifice before the Lord and it has steeled your faith, then share your story and receive others. Pursue a holiness which bears witness in war. Ask the Lord, show me what in my life is unholy before your eyes and cleanse it from me. If you then feel the favor of God, act in boldness. We're not shrinking back. We're going to be bold. God knows the cost and it's enough. And that causes a joy to rise in us when we recognize God's hand is everywhere, ordering even the unfolding of battle. He, he orders the flight of arrows. He orders the flight of bullets. He orders the flight of bombs and of pro projectiles from artillery. He orders the flight and the thoughts and the wishes and the movements of those who pull triggers. He could have averted the war in Ukraine or any war. In his wisdom, he permits it. I say to the God-seekers of Ukraine and Russia, to the Christ-exalting people of this world and to the followers of Christ in this nation and in this city, and I say to the people of the landing and to my own heart, fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Shall we pray? I ask, Lord, that you would take David's example in 1 Samuel 29 and press it to our souls that we would become men, women, and children who would be eager to live out in wartime our faith in God just the way he did. I thank you so much for the examples that this country has been afforded by faithful believers before us. Flawed though they may be, flawed as we may be. 
And I thank you for the future faithful believers that you will raise up within this nation and the nations of the world. I thank you for the faithful leaders you've given to Ukraine. And I pray that faithful leaders who fear God would rise up in Russia. I pray for nations of Africa or of the Middle East or of Asia and Southeast Asia, North and South America, that believers, lovers of God, those who fear him would rise up into places of leadership and create an atmosphere of peace that the gospel might be freely shared and the lost might be freely won to Christ. Lord, we thank you for this chapter and we thank you for how you have triggered our thinking. Now we would offer our lives to you and respond back to you from this chapter with a song of our commitment, a song of our thanksgiving and a song of our praise. Receive it from us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.